Welcome to Legal Ease Australia, presented by a layman and a lawyer. It's designed to demystify the legal process. It'll answer questions like, how do I buy a property? And what do I do if I get arrested? As well as featuring some of Melbourne's leading legal minds and most compelling cases. This is Legal Ease Australia. Welcome to the third episode of Legal Ease Australia podcast. My name's Tom Andronis. I'm the layman in this conversation and I'll be the one asking all of the basic questions. And joining me is John Mellia. He's the lawyer in this conversation. He's principal at Mellia Lawyers. He's a barrister and a solicitor and a member of the Law Institute of Victoria. G'day, John. G'day, Tom. How are you? Very well, thank you. Um, So just recapping, the idea of this podcast is to sort of try and demystify some of the crazy language and the processes that go on as part of the legal process by asking and seeking answers to some pretty basic questions. Uh, Today's topic is bail. Uh, What are some of the things that you're hoping we'll learn from this conversation? Some of the things I'm hoping to um, enlighten people on are what bail is, when bail's used, what requirements you need to satisfy to get bail, and what happens when you're in under bail conditions. So joining us on the line to help enlighten us a little bit about what bail is and how to deal with it is uh, Rishi Nathwani, barrister at the Victorian Bar. Rishi, thank you for joining us. Uh, Pleasure. Nice to be here, Tom. Let's start with the most basic of all questions. Uh, What is bail and when is it required? Bail in layman's terms is simply a a mechanism or process by courts um, in deciding whether or not someone who's accused of an offence and and whether or not they are kept in prison until the outcome of their case, or in fact, whether they are able to be released into the community. And if they are, it's called bail. And bail comes as either with no conditions, which would be unconditional bail, or um, sometimes there'll be conditional bail, which means there are clauses or requirements that a person who has bail has to comply with to uh, stay out in the community as opposed to sitting in trial in in prison until the end of their case. So in order to apply for bail, I have to have been arrested and charged with something, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely right. So, you know, the so court bail, in effect, is what everybody that's charged with an offence gets produced in front of the courts. Obviously, some cases take could take only that one first hearing the first time after being charged. It doesn't really apply in that case if a case finishes straight away. But if someone is on bail for a long period, like, for example, if you're charged with a serious offence, you won't just you'll start off in the magistrate's court and you'll end up in the county court or supreme court during that period of time the courts will have to make a decision as to whether or not you are on bail, so in the community, or kept in custody until the outcome of your case, be it a trial when you're found guilty or not guilty, or if you're found guilty or if you plead guilty, there's a plea hearing and then a sentence. And throughout that entire process, decision has to be made on whether you're released into the community until the outcome, or in fact, in prison until the outcome. So bail is a a decision made by a judge or a bail justice even about whether you are fit and safe to be in the community having been charged and awaiting your day in court. Yeah, absolutely right. And you, you rightly mentioned, obviously, uh, bail justice, they occur um, at the police station uh, often. And what usually happens is, you know, since someone's charged, there may be a bail justice brought out to make a decision. At all junctures, the prosecuting body, be it the police in the magistrate's court at the police station or later on in time, be it the prosecutors from the OPP or the Commonwealth, will have things to say about a person's bail position, whether they object to it or they agree to it in principle, and if they agree, what conditions. Um, So they often 
um, assist with the viewer court form, um, although it's not determinative, it's ultimately for a court to decide. So you're right, you get you get produced before the courts of, or bail justice and they make the decision, having heard the arguments by applying the legal test, whatever it is, which I know we'll go on to discuss, and they'll then decide whether or not the person poses a risk of committing offences on bail in the community, interfering with witnesses in the community, failing to attend, they're the main three objections. And if any of those apply, the court then will have to consider, or the decision maker, be it a bail justice, whether conditions would alleviate those risks. So in other words, if we were to impose a condition on someone, excluding them from an area, for example, does that stop the risk of them committing offences? Which might be yes if it's offences that occur in that area. So they're the questions. And if the court ultimately or the decision maker comes to the conclusion that, in fact, conditions won't stop the concerns or won't be sufficient to allay the concerns of those risks, then they'll keep someone in prison. But it's, it's all a, an argument applying the law. Rishi, do you often find first time up to appear for someone to apply for bail, you don't have enough material information about the individual that would secure a bail? Often, that's right. Uh, more often than not, I think you're right, John, that part of the issues, but to be honest with you, as a practitioner, um, especially in bigger cases, often earlier on is better because sometimes the evidence isn't there that might be more damaging against an accused, which makes it harder to get bail. So sometimes it's the balance of going early. I often, if I can, if if will try to get bail early on, and if during that hearing it becomes obvious that the the judge, the magistrate, or the, whoever the decision maker isn't persuaded at that stage, I just simply ask them to adjourn rather than make a decision. I'll see which way the wind's blowing and ask them to adjourn so I don't lose that shot at bail at that stage. But you're right, John, that early on, some of the things you need to get bail, you won't have. And so it's, it's often the advice to the accused not to bother. But it's, it's on a case-by-case case basis, but not to bother because why would you lose that shot and sometimes lose some of the surprise factor against the prosecuting bodies as to what your application is? You just made it sound quite adversarial, Rishi, that you know I'm, I'm trying to take advantage of, of, a, of even just a, a lack of information or ignorance on the side of the prosecutor. Is, is it sort of that way? Yeah, it can be. The business is adversarial. It is that way sometimes. Look, there are some cases where they'll... The best way to try and get someone bail initially always is to try and uh, negotiate with the other side, which is the police and or the prosecuting bodies, uh, and come to an agreement. And, you know, often there are cases they'll agree this person doesn't require any bail condition or they'd agree to bail on the basis of this person having some conditions which restrict their movement and freedom, and that would delay the concerns. And obviously that's by agreement and in discussion in cooperation with each other, but there are times when it's patently obvious they're never going to agree to bail and you've got to be prepared to play the game. And often it's in accused favour sometimes to go early to use the tactics. Sometimes it's not, you know, it's on a case-by-case basis. But the ones I often find the best way to go early is actually big drugs cases are the ones where you can catch prosecutors cold because they don't really know the full case against each individual at that stage. And it's sometimes better to go then in particular, if you have someone who you probably think is likely to be heavily implicated. What if you do feel that they are heavily implicated and you, you know, as an individual, maybe feel that they shouldn't be on bail? Do you still, are you still obliged to go and try and get it for them? Yeah, of course. And if that's your views, then um, you shouldn't be defending. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's the truth of it. If you are a defence barrister like myself, if I hold views that I don't think someone I represent should be getting bail because they're either a dangerous person or they're 
you know, big drug dealer, then I shouldn't be representing them. So an accused has been arrested and charged and uh, is facing a decision maker. What actually happens in that bail hearing? So um, the bail hearing itself, um, we use the magistrates as an example because most, most, virtually all cases start with a bail application and the magistrates more often than not. You would, before the hearing, um, I would always speak to the police prosecutor or the OPP prosecutor or Commonwealth prosecutor and find out if they're objecting to bail. Depending on the offence that someone's charged with, there are different tests as to whether or not that the court has to be convinced of. Um, so different thresholds to meet. But I would always speak to the informant, ignore the legal tests, which are, you know, un- have compelling reasons and exceptional, you have to say exceptional circumstances. I'd ignore them. But when I speak to an informant, I'd be interested in the unacceptable risk test. And I'd ask them to confirm what their views are on unacceptable risk and why, because the informant ultimately will give evidence at the bail hearing. At the bail hearing, uh, the after you've spoken to them, you've got an idea of what, not just what they're like to say, but you also get a feel for the police officer themselves and how they're like to present. I often play dumb with them to begin with, just to, I just try to feel them out really and make them think I'm weak and not up to it. And then once they're in the witness box, they get in the witness box, they read out the summary, and then they usually outline their objections to bail to the magistrate. Defence lawyers then get a chance to question them, cross-examine them about bit about the circumstances of the uh, the case summary. So you can pick out some holes in the case early on, but tread with care because you might be giving them an insight to the holes in the case for the future that they might be able to remedy that they might not have thought about. And then afterwards, you can suggest conditions to them that would allay those concerns, and they obviously have to give evidence to a magistrate. Thereafter, once all the witnesses that may be required by the prosecution, it's usually just the informant are called, you can call some evidence if you need it and then make submissions to the magistrate as to why you meet the different tests and then uh, the prosecution will get to respond and then thereafter the magistrate will make a decision. So Rishi, you've been before the magistrate, you've been unsuccessful. How many more attempts do you get at applying for bail? You can, strictly speaking, um, keep going again and again and again. Uh, the same magistrate has to be as the general rule. However, when you go in front of them, you will need to show new circumstances, new facts and circumstances that mean it's a different application to one they've rejected. That can be anything. Uh, I did one recently where my client, I think, represented himself for the first hearing. No, solicitor represented him at the first hearing. Bail's refused. We got another bail application listed about six weeks later. I went and dealt with it. The court accepted new uh, facts and circumstances because the police had served a better brief of evidence, which undermined what they were saying against my client. And secondly, there was obviously the the COVID pandemic and the case law from the Supreme Court about that. So I was able to say those two taken together uh, were new facts and circumstances. You can apply as many times as long as you persuade the court first that you've established new facts and circumstances. But anyway, if all of that fails, um, you have uh, one in free shot in the Supreme Court. You've mentioned a couple of times that there are some tests that can be applied to whether someone is granted bail or not. Is that a standard set of tests and, and what are they? Yeah, they are standard sorts of tests. And um, the Bail Act was reformed, I think it was last year. Um, it was last memory's- year terrible it's like a sieve but reformed in effect to try and make it much more difficult for people to get bail was the uh, the political background to it so 
Coughlin Jay uh, went and considered the bail test. There's now two types of basic tests that apply. It depends on the offence to which you're charged with. If you're charged with the most serious offences, they're called Schedule 1 offences, so big commercial drug trafficking, murder, etc., etc., they are Schedule 1 offences. For those types of cases, you, it's a two-step test. The first is you have to show that this is the accused, has to show there are exceptional circumstances that justify the granting of bail in that accused case. If the court is persuaded there are exceptional circumstances, they then go on to consider what's straightforward and known as the unacceptable risk test. If you're charged with a less serious offence called a Schedule 2 offence, now you go to the bail out, look at Schedule 2, it tells you what offence has fallen underneath it. There's a compelling reason test, and the test there is not too dissimilar. Compelling reason isn't as high a threshold for an accused to reach, so compelling reason, the test is again the same. The bail decision maker must refuse bail unless satisfied a compelling reason exists. And again, once that's done, they then go on to consider the uh, unacceptable risk test for both. So using both exceptional circumstances test or the compelling reasons test, the court has to bear in mind what's called the surrounding circumstances. I find pretty much in every bail application I've made, I think since I've been here, I'm pretty sure every single one, it's always my starting point, which is the surrounding circumstances. If you go to Section 3 AAA of the Bail Act, it sets out a number of factors a court has to consider when determining both of those tests that I've alluded to. I've got it in front of me, actually, and it's just bits and pieces you look at. So you have to discuss the nature and seriousness of the alleged offending, including whether it's a serious example of the offence. So if you're defending someone, you'd obviously try and show it's not the most serious example of whatever the offence is. The strength of the prosecution case, well, that's a matter of each particular case. The accuser criminal history, so if someone's got no prize, that's great. But even then, you can make submissions, even if they have, that they've not got any history of breaching bail, for example, or uh, breaching court orders. The next one is the extent to which the accused has complied with the conditions of any grant of bail, earlier grant, that is. The next one's whether at the time the offending the accused was on bail, subject to summons, was at large awaiting trial, was released under parole order. So obviously, the court's being told to look at previous compliance of the individual of court orders. The next fact which is important is the accused personal circumstances, associations, home environment and background. So that's where coming from a well-supported family in the community is important. And, you you know, you can bring out all the background information. H, one of the other factors is cognitive impairment or mental health or intellectual disability. And then the rest relate to someone who may or may not have convictions for terrorism, support for terror groups. Now, I use all of these because they're just, even if someone, it's not a terror case, I can say, look, this person hasn't got any of those, so it's in their favour. And so when you combine all of those factors, and you can be pretty creative, it's not exhaustive as to the meaning of each one, you then make your submission that, in fact, we fall under, or we've persuaded you that exceptional circumstances apply to grant bail, or that there are compelling reasons, and then you go on to unacceptable risk, and the unacceptable risk is where bail conditions come in. So you can meet someone's risk by the imposition of bail conditions, such as living in a particular home, a static address, not reporting to a police station. So someone's constantly going on a daily basis or twice a week, which, again, is a means of showing that they're presenting at a police station. And so therefore we know where they are 
it's less likely to be potentially committing offences, not to associate with other people, to have a curfew so they're in between certain hours and to have what I call a doorstep condition, but it's where a police officer is able to knock on the, the door uh, at a particular hour and that person has to present. And there's loads of other conditions like excluding someone from a particular area, like I suggested. And that goes to the unacceptable risk test, which is the second stage of the, the test I outlined. So Rishi, you certainly look at the best interests of your client and you look at the best way to get them bail. So you've been successful, you've got bail, you've got some conditions and people hear a lot about people putting up what's called a surety. Can you give us an explanation of what that is and what it might entail? Is that like on when you're watching NYPD Blue or something and they say, you know, this person's going to make bail for a million dollars? Is that what you're, the sort of thing you're talking about? It's sort of, right. sort of. The American system is slightly different. The American system is where they go in and almost um, walk into a court and the court says, right, I've listened to your case and if you want bail, you need to post a million dollars. Mm. So it's slightly different. A surety is, is slightly different because it's not just finding money. A surety is, in effect, a person who's prepared to put up an amount of money on the basis that the person they put the money up for, the accused, won't breach their bail undertake. So let me break that down into normal speak. That's like being uh, a guarantor. Let, sort of. Um, but let's say I'm. Let's say I get into trouble. Uh, I get my parents to come along and they promise to give up ten thousand dollars. If the court decides that's appropriate, uh, they'll grant me bail with several conditions. Let's say it was to live at the address and to abide by a curfew. The surety would then in effect, come to an agreement with the court where if I don't attend on bail, if I um, are not at the static address, if I breach the undertaking, in other words, if I breach my bail, they would forfeit the $10,000. And so they're basically making a deal with the court saying they trust me enough that I wouldn't disappear with them, that I wouldn't just run off uh, and they'd lose the money. Now, uh, the Bail Act, I've got it in front of me, but each person's different. So, you know, $10,000 to the most wealthy person is nothing. And so if someone's very, very wealthy, you can expect to have to pay far more than $10,000 or if they're charged with a really serious offence. Alternatively, the Bail Act says, if you know, the court has to consider people uh, and their means. And so if someone's of limited means, 10 grand's a lot, lot more. And so a court might take 10 grand more seriously from someone with limited means than someone who's extremely wealthy, who would be in a drop in the ocean too. But the condition is often, the, the bail package is proposed by the defence in advance and sometimes the prosecution or the police might say oh actually can you add a surety that will get it across the line so it's, it's rare for a court to suggest that a surety might be needed or a condition but if they do you've got to be able to move on i've had cases before not not in australia actually but i've had cases before where a judge has said if you get a surety of x amount then i'll, I'll grant you bail so, Rishi, you are a, a barrister, defence barrister. Are you the sort of person that gets phone calls, you know, receives phone calls in the middle of the night um, saying such and such has been arrested and charged with such and such and we need you to come and appear before a bail justice? Is that your sort of thing? Uh, it's not so much anymore. Right. It used to be. I still do it occasionally. I usually tend to get the phone calls when they're being produced at the, the magistrate's court. Um, the next morning. To deal with, yeah, that's when I tend to... Uh, more often than not, it's the solicitors who should be or tend to get the calls in relation to the, the bail justice stuff. It's rare that I get called out, but I, I usually get there at the, the court stage. And what made you want to follow this path, you know, this particular part of the law? As in um, criminal law? Yeah, criminal defence. Oh, defence. Yeah. I've always wanted to. It's just um, just sad, sad story as a child. I um, became obsessed with 
JFK killings decided I wasn't good at much and thought I'd be not bad at arguing stuff and <laughs> on I went with this journey and as soon as I started I wanted to defend and I did some kind of paralegal training for a criminal defence firm and that confirmed to me that's what I want to do. I'm not very good at being responsible for putting people in prison because I don't necessarily believe in it. I prefer trying to keep them out. So that's um, that's why I ended up where I did. That's a whole different interview there, I reckon. With the, yeah, uh, the, I reckon, the prob- <laughs> I reckon that that's probably is. another episode. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So is there anything that we've missed in the bail process? No, I don't think so. Um, I think we've covered it. And so the lessons, I suppose, to take away from this is A, don't get yourself arrested and charged with something. But if you do, you'll need to appear before a bail justice or a court. There is a two-stage test as to whether you will be eligible for bail or not. This is not America, so you can't buy your way out of it just by putting up a surety. And if we do end up in that sort of situation, it'll probably be a solicitor that appears for us in the middle of the night and then someone like Rishi Nathwani, a barrister, will appear the next morning and uh, do their absolute best to get us bail. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, Rishi Nathmani, barrister at the Victoria Bar. Uh, we are very grateful for your time. Thanks very much for your contribution and hopefully we have educated some people on the ways of bail. I hope so. Thanks very much. Thanks, Rishi. John, have we uh, learnt there what you were hoping we would learn? Yes, and more. Well, there you go. Rishi is a font of knowledge when it comes to bail. John, thanks to you for uh, taking part. You are principal at uh, Melia Lawyers. And thank you, Tom. Thanks so much. Thanks also to Greenslist Barristers for their support in putting this podcast together. And of course, our disclaimer that this is general advice only. And if you do require specific advice or assistance, you should most definitely contact a legal practitioner. Thank you very much for joining us on Legal Ease Australia podcast. We hope you learned something and we look forward to speaking with you again soon.